one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. We are here, Red Sox beat, clnsradio.com, episode 5, can't believe it's been 5 weeks already. That being said, I'm joined by, of course, Nathan Rollins, my co-host, I am Jared Skelly. Nate, you doing okay this week? I'm great. That's good, good to know. It's been a decent week, been okay, been a good amount of baseball. We have Brian McPherson here joining us in just a few seconds, but first, I want to remind you fans that you can, for semi-regular updates and breaking news from CLNS Radio, Look no further than CLNS fans e-blast. If you, all you have to do is text on board to 22828 for free coverage delivered directly to your inbox. Or you can go on to our website, clnsradio.com backslash team feed for all the good stuff and information there for your specific teams. That being said, the pleasantries out of the way. We are joined by Brian McPherson of the Providence Journal, Red Sox beat writer for the paper down there. He does a great job. He knows his team. Brian, you doing okay today? Yeah, I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Not too bad. We can jump right into it, uh, Brian. Obviously, a disappointing year this year for the Red Sox, coming off of the World Series win, going back to last place again. What do you think happened this year? What do you think the problems were for this team, in your opinion? I mean, obviously, you look at the offensive side of the ball. This is the big part of it. You know, the pitching did did everything you could have hoped before, certainly before the trading deadline. Um, but, you know, there's there's been a lot of spotlight on the younger players, and, you know, certainly guys like Will Millbrooks and Jackie Bradley Jr. and Sander Bogart didn't perform, I think, the way a lot of us expected. And certainly the Red Sox hoped that they would perform, but it's well beyond them, too. Dustin Bedroia got hurt early on. Um, his numbers continue to slide, especially his slugging numbers. Mike Napoli uh, injured his finger early on and really wasn't the same home run hitter he'd been in past years, probably in part due to those injuries. Um, someone like Rady Sizemore was basically a non-impact um guy from the beginning, AJ Prezinski didn't hit the way they wanted. You know, it's not it's not easy to pick out any specific area other than just to say that offensively, this team, which is normally one of the better teams year in and year out in American League East in terms of scoring runs, just was not as good as it's been in past years. All the bad things throughout this team, like you said, really hard to pick one. Prezinski was awful. Obviously Grady Sizemore didn't pan out. Can you give me one good thing? Give me an M V P from this two thousand fourteen season? I mean, the one name in the lineup that I didn't really mention was uh, David Ortiz, who, you know, given all the discussion about his contract status last spring training and all the skepticism you know, about the Red Sox spending money on a guy at his age, a 38-year-old DH with some injury issues, Ortiz played the whole season. You know, he wasn't perfectly healthy the whole season, but he played the whole season. He was productive the whole season. He was the one constant in the middle of the batting order, hitting for power, getting on base, basically doing everything that David Ortiz has always done. And... You know, we take that for granted, I think, now, but you know, it's still remarkable. You know, and it's that he does what he does, and it's certainly you know, a relief for the Red Sox that they have him under contract for next year rather than having to worry about that. You know, it's bringing back David Ortiz on top of everything else they have to do to improve their offense. I'd like to touch with you, Brian, uh, briefly. And the closing situation going into next season, that, that's obviously a big question mark. And I look at some guys in the market, uh, the Jason Grillies, the Casey Jansons, the Koji Uiharas. Do you see the Red Sox going out and signing a closer, or do you see them looking internal at maybe a Matt Barnes and Alex Wilson or a Ruby De La Rosa? I think the hope is still that they, their hope is still that they'll bring back Koji Uihara. Um, last I heard, they hadn't decided whether or not they were going to tender him a qualifying offer, 
which would basically wipe out his market. He'd almost certainly accept it. And while it would be a little bit of an overpay, they wouldn't have to go to multiple years to for a guy who's 40 years old. Um, certainly there's some concerns with Koji Uehara, um, given his kind of swoon in late August, early September. You kind of wonder if he's losing it a little bit. He had he went through a similar stretch a couple of years ago as well. Um, I think part of the fact that his success is so mysterious, you know, he doesn't throw that hard. He basically throws two pitches, um, neither of which is higher, harder than 90 miles an hour. You know, make you know make you sort of wonder what's going on and make you know make it something you kind of accept readily when he struggles as as being him kind of losing it. But I think the Red Sox are hopeful that he'll still be effective. And I think they'd certainly rather bring back Louis Hara. You know, they, they've had so much trouble finding back in bullpen guys. Going back to Bobby Jenks, Joel Hanrahan, Mark Melanson struggled for his year in Boston. Um, even Edward Mujica, you know, certainly is going to be in the mix as well. And if they, if they don't bring back Koji Uehara, he might well be the closer. He pitched very well in the second half of the season. Um, but, you know, these guys like Andrew Bailey, Hanrahan, all these guys the Red Sox have gone out to get have not worked very well. So I think they'd probably prefer to bring back, you know, the guy that, that didn't work out very well when they signed him, which is a big part of why they didn't trade him, you know, even though he probably could have helped a contender in the second half of the season. Yes, you've mentioned they have struggled significantly finding that back end of the guy. And, you know, when they had Uihara, that that was kind of a spark on this team. And one more position I'd like to touch on is third base. Uh, the Red Sox have a lot of extra outfielders, maybe an extra first baseman. Do you see them making a deal for a third baseman? Or, again, do you see them looking internally at that position as well? I think probably you'll see a free agent signing there. I mean, there's certainly there's some trade options. I think they'd rather, you know, they don't have so much depth that they're just going to give guys away. And some of these extra guys that you mentioned in the outfield or first base don't have a ton of trade value. They're not going to bring back a really good major league player. I think when you look at the free agent market, you know, if, if you think the Red Sox probably don't want to start Will Middlebrooks on opening day next year, and given the way the last two years have gone, it would be hard to blame them. The first two names you look at are Pablo Sandoval and Chase Headley. Um, they both, they're different style players, um, but they both, can hit from the left side. I believe they're both switch hitters, but the Red Sox want to add a left-handed hitter, and that's a position where they have an open, they have a chance to add a left-handed hitter. Um, both of those guys are switch hitters, which essentially fits the bill. Um, both of those guys are pretty decent defenders. Headley better than Sandoval. Is Sandoval better than you think, given his physique? Both could be kind of middle-of-the-order hitters, and that's a spot where you look for an upgrade. I think it makes sense that one of those two guys will be the primary target for this team that, you know, is still prizing its young players, still wants to hang on to assets. And when they have the financial resources they do, it does make sense to spend money before you trade away players. All right, Brian. So we all know they need pitching. It's a huge thing. Obviously, we traded away Lester, and there's there's obviously options. you got Shields, you got Lester. Cole Hamels is an option. There's a report out that he has a chance that the Red Sox are interested in him as they were earlier in the season. There's been a big argument going around CLNS between all of our Red Sox writers and other people as well. I'm going to ask you this question. If you had a choice, would you take Shields or Lester? I think, I mean, it, I think it's going to depend on the price, and it's going to depend on the number of years. I think if the price is the same, you take Lester. A, because you know him. B, because he's younger. You know, there's a lot of reasons. Lester's been very good for Boston for a long time. Um, I think the reason that Shields gets a lot of ink and people – you know, including myself, certain Sea Shield is a is a primary target of the Red Sox is just because the price probably in years and total dollars figures to be less. That because he's a little bit older, you could get a James Shield for three years, even at big money. You know, whereas Lester now maybe it'll take six. So that's that's gonna be the deciding factor and that's where that's why you maybe see them looking into the trade market. 
You know, Cole Hamels would be expensive prospect-wise, but you'd only need to guarantee four years to him. You know, Johnny Cueto they could trade for, and he's just one year. And then you're not you're not locking yourself into a long-term pitcher deal. So you know, it's uh, the Red Sox have a lot of options there. You know, it's, this is a place where Ben Sherrington has a chance to get creative. You know, the young pitchers that came up certainly were disappointing. You know, the Workmans and the Websters and those guys, you know, nobody really kind of sees a job there. So there's there's openings in the starting rotation. They really need at least one front-end guy, probably two. But there's there are many, many options uh, for Ben Sherrington and his staff to look at. You know, Shields and Lester absolutely will be at the top of the list. Okay, if you if you think since you think that Lester is would be the best option, if they miss on Lester, do you think Shields can be the ace of this staff? Sure, he's been an ace for a long time, and he's Shields been a very good pitcher for a long time, and most of his most of his career was spent in the AL East. So you know he's not he's not a top five pitcher in the game, but he's a very good pitcher. He probably has more similarities to John Lackey, just in kind of that profile of being a very good pitcher. Um, but then again, that's what John Lester's done for a lot of his career too. Don't forget that you know this season was his best season, and last October was tremendous. But he had a three and a half ERA over the course of last season. This is not a guy who's been an ace ace, you know, up there with the Verlanders of the world for most of his career. He's been the next tier down. So I don't think you don't need a Verlander or Kershaw to contend. You need really good pitchers. And Lester has been a really good pitcher. And Shields has been a really good pitcher. There's, and that's where I'm saying there's there's a lot of options because you know Hamels, you know, the same way Hamels has been very good. He hasn't been elite. You know, maybe he's an ace. Maybe he's not. I think it depends on your definition of ace. But you know, they need to go at a couple of guys who are you know front end, middle to top of the rotation, number one, number two, number three, whatever they are. I wouldn't get too hung up on, you know, whether somebody can be a number one starter because for this team, especially if they rebuild the offense, you know, you can win. If you have three number two starters, basically, at the front of your rotation, you know, the equivalent of, say, Shields and Lackey and someone else, uh, that can be a really good rotation. One thing I like about James Shields, Brian, is that he just guts it out, and he really – you've seen it in his last two postseason starts this year. He really get, guts it out for his team no matter – he hasn't pushed you into the seventh inning every time, but he really guts it out. And that's, I kind of want to almost transition into the playoffs real quick before we let you go. What do you think of the playoffs so far? And realistically, what, what about these Royals? Like, what, what are the Royals doing that really is starting to intrigue everybody and not just themselves? Because the, Ro- the Royals have believed in themselves all year, but it seems like finally now baseball fans are really kind of buying into this whole Royals team now. I mean, it's been, it's been tremendous. The playoffs have been fantastic so far. I don't, I don't know that I would draw too many broad sweeping conclusions about you know, team building based on the Royals, I think they tell you a couple of things. One, they play defense. They've been a great defensive team all year. They continue to be a great defensive team. You saw that in some of their games out in Anaheim, especially, you know, it was basically guys running down balls in the outfield was the difference in that game. The other thing that I find interesting about the Royals is this young core of guys that were so disappointing for so long. You know, they, for a long time, they had the best farm system in the game. These guys came up. Mike Moustakis came up and wasn't good and went down to AAA this year. Eric Hosmer has been disappointing. Didn't hit for any power. If you're going to be a first baseman, you have to hit for power. And these guys just, you know, Salvador Perez took time. All these guys came up and took time. And certainly in Kansas City, even if their fans are frustrated, you can afford to wait a little longer probably than in Boston. And when, when you look at guys like Xander Bogarts and Jackie Bradley and Will Middlebrook um, with the Red Sox, and you start to wonder, you know, how long can the Red Sox stick with these guys? It's worth looking at the Hosmers and the Moustakas, guys that were, t- were top prospects, then struggled, and now, you know, especially Hosmer seems to be having kind of a coming out party here in the playoffs. And it's it's worth remembering that, that 
you know, guys, the development is not always linear, and guys don't always make it right away, but sometimes they end up making it, you know, later than you thought. Brandon Moss with the A's is another example of a guy, you know, the Red Sox had him, traded him away, and several years later, and a couple of organizations later, he ended up making a big in- impact for Oakland. So, you know, as fans get impatient to, you know, shove these young guys aside and make room for the next one, to get rid of Middlebrooks or get rid of Bradley or whatever it would be, and these guys are kind of a cautionary tale there that, that sometimes these guys, it just takes a while for these guys to pan out. I got one more question for you, not related to the playoffs. I do want to talk to you about Major League Baseball in general. They are working on new rules. They've put out new rules to pick up the pace of play or test it out, picking up the pace of play in the game itself. What do you think of Major League Baseball finally doing something about these long games and trying to cut some time off these games? Well, I guess I would say I'll, I'll wait to see them actually do something before before we assume they're doing something, because actually doing something is different than forming a committee, but at least a committee is a good first step, and some of these things that they're trying out in Arizona Fall League, um, namely, you know, the the, four, the automatic intentional walk is going to save, like, five seconds. I'm not that worried about that one. Keeping batters in the box, though, I think is a big one. That's the one that I think stalls the game the most. These guys step out of the box and jump their batting gloves. You know, Mark R.C. Parra used to be known for this, because he was one of the few guys that did it. Now everybody does it. You know, just to take 30 seconds between every pitch because you're adjusting your glove, you're adjusting your batting helmet, you're digging back in all these things. You know, to see umpires keep batters in the box and to kind of keep the game moving that way. You know, the length of the game itself is not a problem. It's the, it's the amount of dead time in the middle of the game that just gets excruciating and it gets boring. And, you know, you're not going to stay up late. You know, if the games are going late, you're not going to stay up late to watch something where there's a pitch every 45 seconds. You know, but if the game is moving along, you're going to get people watching it no matter how long it runs. So I think that you know to kind of pick up the pace is the goal, and keeping the batters in the box is the most intriguing one to me. We'll see if the players go along with it if they try and institute it. And that might be a little bit of a battle and an adjustment for the hitters. But you know I think the goal has to be to make the game more accessible to people watching on TV, and that's a big first step. All right. Again, this is Brian McPherson from the Providence Journal. Of course, took his time out to join us today on Red Sox Beat. You can find him on Twitter at Brian MacP, or just search Brian McPherson. He's well enough known that you can just find him by a simple Google search at this point in his career. Brian, we want to thank you for coming on and taking your time out of your Monday, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the playoffs for sure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Again, that was Brian McPherson of the Providence Journal. Now, and I kind of want to sit here and chat with you a little bit now. We have some topics to get through. It's gonna be it's a it's a lot of stuff to talk about. With Brian, Brian was nice enough to come on and give us our his opinions on everything. Now, what I want to start with is the debate we've been having. Just because I want to go with what his answer was. Now, he said right off the bat, if you have the option of Shields or Lester, you take Lester. I agree with that. That's the right decision. And then I followed up to the real debate that we've been having, and between you, me. Adam Bellew and other people through CLNS, we've been struggling to get on the same page with this answer. He says that Shields can be an ace on this staff and that you don't, I mean, you don't need a Max Scherzer to win. I get that. I knew that. You kind of understand that. But he says Shields can be the ace of this Red Sox staff next year. Why don't you agree with that? Because I know you don't. Uh, One of the big things that sticks out to me about James Shields, and I'm going to say it again, is the postseason ERA. 4.96. 4.96. Now, that worries me. He came into the Oakland Athletics game, and to me, he did not look good. I mean, he allowed four runs to a team who, nine out of their last 11 games, had scored under four runs. So that was, that was to me, a 
he let that team, you know, get their bats going. Ultimately, Kansas City did end up overcoming the deficit in a great game. But you look on some of the good Tampa Bay teams, he was buying guys like Matt Garza and David Price. Now, I understand when they went to the World Series, he was considered the ace. But you look in the ALCS of that year, and he was 0-2 versus the Red Sox, a very good hitting lineup. To me, his postseason numbers do worry me. I mean, uh, the guy's a gamer, I'll give you that. But to bring him in and to have him be the ace, I, I just don't see it. I mean, he's a good pitcher. He's a great number two guy. But when I think of an ace, I think of a Lester. I think of a Price. I think of uh, a Scherzer. I, I, James Shields is just not the name that comes to the top of my head. And, you know, I'm probably in the minority. But it to me, I just don't consider him an ace. I do agree with you in the sense that he, his the game against the A's wasn't great, but he still was able to gut it out and grit it out. And look, going into that game, Lester didn't pitch well either, and it was kind of a lopsided game to what people didn't expect. It was a, not a pitcher's duel, which what we expected to be. His, his last game was a lot better. He got in the sixth inning. They had, they were able to do well and clinch. I think James Shields is an ace because one, like what backing off of what Brian said, you don't he does you don't need a A plus. Max Scherzer ace guy to win. You just need someone who can be capable of leading a pitching staff. Now, I think James Shields can do that. He has done that this year in Kansas City. If he wasn't an ace pitcher, I don't think Kansas City would be where they are. He's just that good of a pitcher, and with what the Red Sox offseason plans seem to be doing and what they have the ability to do, having him as the ace of this staff wouldn't be a terrible thing because in the regular season, he's phenomenal, and that is a true thing, and that's where he gets his A status really from. And I, I know the postseason numbers aren't great, but he still grits it out, and with an offense that's supposed to be a lot better next year, and at least of what we're projecting the Red Sox to look like in 2015, I wouldn't mind him at the top of the rotation. Now, would I rather him be number two? Yes, I completely agree with that. Because if he's number two, then you got a stud guy at number one. And that's what I want. But, I can't refute the fact that James Shields definitely can be an ace going into 2015 because you have depth with some young guys who can handle the back end. Plus, you have some. You can probably you can make an opinion of trade even to get a smaller pitcher if you can't go after Cole Hamels. I think in terms of what like we've talked about this uh, Red Sox going into the off season, I don't think you're going to get be able to get Cole Hamels and James Shields. Uh, the big name out there are James Shields, Lester Scherzer. And then obviously Cole Hamels via trade, which the Phillies said they're now shopping. And now they're listening to offers for the guy, which is awesome for both their sakes because the Phillies are old and they need to figure out a way to get rid of that age, and he's the primary suspect to let go. Yeah, I I do see where you're coming, but I think this whole renaissance of the Kansas City Royals pitching staff is just being narrowed down to James Shields. But... I mean, you look at guys down that. Yordani Ventura is having a great season. 14 wins, the same amount of shields, a 320 ERA. You got Danny Duffy sporting a 253 ERA. These are key guys in this rotation. Now, I understand James Shields is having a James Shields year, but. The, the, the thing I'd like to point out is, is the Kansas City Royals pitching staff isn't just coming around because of James Shields. We've seen pitching staffs with just one guy fail. I mean, you, Kansas City has the supporting cast around Shields. They have an excellent bullpen. Uh, Greg Holland's one of the best closers in baseball. I mean, the offense is hitting timely, and 
I just think James Shields is getting a little bit too much credit for the Kansas City Royals run. He he deserves the credit to some extent. I get that sometimes he's getting over the top credit, but I don't see why you can't give him the credit for the sense of he's the ace of that staff, and both times he's pitched, they've won, regardless of how well he's pitched. They've won. And yes, sometimes the bats help, but the elimination game, they won 8-3 against the A's. Now, I know the A's were struggling in this, this series, but he still went in and pitched against Mike Trout, Albert Pujols, and these guys who were supposed to be, and, and, and Josh Hamilton, who were phenomenal hitters in their right, and he only let up two earned runs that game, went six innings. And yeah, in his postseason ERA this season so far is a three. So for me, if you can go six innings and only allow two earned runs to what was the one of the best lineups all season, that's ace status. I don't care how bad they're slumping. That, if you're able to keep them in that slump, that proves that you're an ace to me in terms of if you're a guy who's supposed to be an ace, like James Shields is, and goes in and does his job and it only allows two earned runs to one of the best offenses in the league this season, that that's still keeping his ace status to me. Well, that very well could be keeping the ace status, but I mean, you're looking at an Angels team, and I had mentioned this previous, they do not have very good postseason numbers, top to bottom. I mean, Albert Pujols doesn't even have the best postseason numbers. I mean, the Angels, as I had mentioned, were a team I think was pretty much set up for failure. I mean, they only had one real guy at the top of that rotation, Weaver, and if you could get by Weaver, you could pretty much have your way with that bullpen, and you could have the way with the rest of that staff on the Angels. Yeah, the Angels definitely have been struggling, and that is why they're going home again. They they haven't had the best track record, obviously, even dating back to the days that the Red Sox had their number in the postseason as well. While we're on the subject, because I, I think this, this conversation is really going nowhere at this point, because we're going to agree to disagree. We've been doing this for the last week over Facebook and all this That's stuff. That's how it should be. It's how it should be. I'm okay with it. It's fine. We both have our great opinions, and we're not going to back down. I'm, I, it's how it should be. I agree. But since we're talking about the Angels, I want to know what you think about Mike Trout, and what has happened to this guy? Because Mike Trout, everyone was hyping up, oh, Angel's doing great. Mike Trout gets his first, first postseason, wait for him to take over, the next star of baseball. He got one hit the entire series, and it was the home run last night. Yes, Mike Trout has struggled big time uh, during the postseason and then the last stretch of the regular season. I mean, you look at the, his average dip below 300. Uh, he only hit 287 on the year, which is which is not really Mike Trout year. I mean, you're starting to see the pitchers pitching around him, pitching him inside, pitching him away, changing up the type of pitches they've been throwing him. And, I mean, it's really working. He does have to figure out a way. I mean, we have seen guys who have come up, who have made a name for themselves, and then starting to get figured out, they're starting to, their averages have started to lower. And Mike Trout, I mean, his first postseason, nobody really knew what they were going to get out of him. He's a young kid. He's probably got many more postseasons ahead of him, but he's definitely got to work with somebody and and, uh, figure out what's going on because, like I said, pitchers are just finding a way to beat him. Yeah, Mike Trout, is struggling to say, was struggling to say the least right up to the end of the season here for them as they were eliminated, of course. I, I, it just fathoms me how, mu- how much he was slacking and because he, was ha- he had a fantastic year like the, the whole team did, and that's why they were expected to do so well. The Angels struggled. Look, I'm not taking anything away from the Royals. They took it to the Angels. They took it to them every night, and they beat them. They beat them fair and square. The Angels c- couldn't, didn't have an answer for the Royals, and the Royals kept going with the team baseball. Now, if we might as well, while we're on the subject, we might as well go through what we feel about the other side, too. Now, Baltimore swept their series. 
They are they won two one to take the series from Detroit, and they're playing the Royals in the ALCS. First of all, I don't know how anyone, if anyone, predicted this ALCS because it's Baltimore and Kansas City. Kansas City barely made it into the playoffs, and Baltimore has been the butt of the AL East for I don't even know how long anymore. But here they are, Baltimore playing Kansas City in the ALCS. We have the Tigers out. We have the A's, who were supposed to be there with the Tigers, out. Angels, out. You had the Orioles take down three former Cy Young winners. The last three years, actually, of their Cy Young winners. You took them all down. Three games in a row. Bang, 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 done. You had a guy, David Price, who pitched a good game, but he still lost, and you traded for him at the trade deadline. What happened to the Tigers, if anything, or was it really just the Baltimore team really coming together and do you think this Baltimore team has what it takes to get all the way and win a tight championship? Well, to do with the Tigers, they just pulled, I mean, Detroit Tigers fashion baseball, get to the postseason and choke. I mean, they were outpitched by some some bad guys like a Bud Norris and a Chris Tillman. I mean, those are guys when you have a, a stud lineup in Detroit and you have the Miguel Cabrera, you have the Tory Hunter, you're not supposed to be losing games to Chris Tillman and Bud Norris in which you only scored three in one run. I mean, that is something that needs to be addressed big time down there in Detroit. And, you know, give Baltimore credit. They played a phenomenal game of baseball. They were putting runs on the board left and right, and as you mentioned, beating three Cy Young Award winners, I don't care what team they're on, that is very impressive, and you know, the thing that's amazing me is that without their best player, arguably, and Matt Wieters, one of the best defensive catchers in the game, calls a great game, and you know, they're doing it with young guys behind the plate, and that's just amazing to me that they can go against a team, Detroit, who you could argue is trying to buy themselves a World Series, and sweep them. I'm, that is just amazing. I think Baltimore could very well make the World Series, and I'm not predicting too far into it, but that is going to be a very exciting series of uh, Baltimore and Kansas City and some very excited fan bases who have not seen much postseason play as of late. Yeah, the postseason baseball in the last 10 years in both those cities has been dry and bare and Basically, a desert waiting to ha- desert never getting rain for the next 20 years. It has been dead. And Baltimore's fan base, I've never really been a fan. I mean, there's nothing really, I have nothing really against the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, they're in our division, but they've been bad for so long that it doesn't, like, no one's really ever taken them seriously. And they're that underdog role. The teams are definitely, the team is definitely accepting that underdog role and playing it. And the Royals fan base is fantastic. And I, they're the only ones who believed all year the Royals were actually going to do something. And now here they are. And the Royals are playing phenomenal as well. Back to Bud Norris. Now, I don't... Bud Norris isn't a terrible pitcher. And he pitched a great game the other night. He didn't give up a run in the six and, six and a third innings. He pitched 100 pitch count on the dot. 60 of them strikes. Good percentage for Bud Norris. But like you said, if David Price... you're <laughs> The one mistake David Price made, it was barely a mistake because Nelson Cruz just took it to the opposite field and barely made it out of the ballpark. Price didn't pitch that bad of a game. He waited eight innings and only gave up those two runs. It was just that his teammates couldn't pick him up. His teammates couldn't do anything. Bud Norris, like you said, was just not a great pitcher, but he was blowing it by guys. Miguel Cabrera, Torrey Hunter. Where are those guys in the spotlight? They haven't done anything. Miguel Cabrera comes out and says, I don't want to sign my contract for the playoff bonus. I just want to win a World Series. Well, why don't you show up and actually play for once, Miguel Cabrera, because you haven't done anything since you've been in the postseason. And 
you Detroit Tiger fans have every right to be pissed at you if they are because you haven't done anything for your team. You had three stud pitchers and you got swept by the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, I'm Bud Norris, you mentioned, pitched a great game, and uh, but at the end of the day, it's Bud Norris, and I mean, if he's your three on a pitching rotation, you, you don't really know if your team's going to be in trouble or not. I mean, you figure factor into a rotation, you, you hear in a guy like Bud Norris, you think, ah, oh, maybe a good four or five starter. But as you mentioned, Torrey Hunter and Miguel Cabrera, just complete no-shows in the playoffs. I think they both hit below 250. I mean, really just a complete embarrassment for Detroit uh, going into this these playoffs. I mean, going into the season, they were the pick to make the World Series and win the World Series. And they even go out and they get a guy like David Price, bolster that team even more, and they just come out flat and, you know, hands down to Baltimore and, like, uh, they're just an incredible story. We'll give a quick, quick shout out to Andrew Miller, fellow former Red Sox, locking it down last night for the Orioles as well. He's been a good trade value for them so far. He looks to get another World Series ring, maybe come back to Boston in the offseason. Who knows? I wouldn't mind it. Wouldn't put it past the team either, that's for sure. Now, one thing, we have a good series in the Dodgers and the Cardinals. And that, that's living up to what it was supposed to be. Now, we, ha- we also had the longest game in postseason history by time and innings between the Giants and the Nationals. Giants, they went 18 innings and won the game. What happened to the Na- What's going on with the Nationals? Now, I get the Nationals haven't been blown out as much of a fashion. They went 18 innings. Like, it wasn't like they were getting blown out, and they haven't looked awful, but they were one game away from elimination. Uh, what ha- what happened to the Nationals and what do they need to do to get to not lose to the Giants? I don't know as it's what happened to the Nationals. I think it's what's going on in San Francisco, and you're just seeing a team in San Francisco who is a complete different monster come postseason play. They got a contribution from Jake Peavy. Uh, no Matt Kane this year, but I mean they're just getting contributions up and down the order. Madison Bumgarner looked absolutely filthy in the play-in game that they had against uh, Pittsburgh. I mean. You're just seeing a complete different monster in San Fran, and you know Washington's got to figure it out. It's either the use coming, use really coming to the forefront, where they just have not experienced much postseason play, and they don't know how to react to it because you know Steven Strasburg pitched a very good game against Jake Peavy. You look at that game on paper and you think advantage Nationals, but I mean in Washington as well. But I mean. Steven Strasburg got out-dueled. Uh, the young guy, Tanner Rourke, got out-dueled. I mean, it was just just tough to watch if you're a Nationals fan. You hope the offense comes um, comes alive, but going to San Francisco, that's going to be a very tough task. And Madison Bumgarner is pitching as well as any pitcher has been pitching. So they got to figure out something. they got to play some small ball. they got to get some runs on the board early and hopefully come away with a win. I... Would not put it past the Giants to sweep right now, just because they're at home. Like you said, home. Baumgartner's pitching better than anybody I've seen right now, and he's at home. And he went lights out in that wild card game. And I expect him to do the same tonight. Now, the Nationals have a tough task ahead of them. They had World Series admirations. Every a lot of people picked them to win the World Series, especially on the ESPN National guys. But I think that Giants are definitely. In a great position, obviously, being up 2-0. I think Bob Gardner is going to finish it for them. And it's something about the Giants. Now, Giants like the even number year, so you got to think that 
they're going to they're going to push through here. And now obviously they have the Dodgers or the Cardinals waiting from on the, on the other side. But I think for the Giants they have to hope that the Cardinals win somehow because I think the Giants probably would lose to the Dodgers. Yeah, they the Dodgers have had the Giants number this season and uh you know they the Giants have played fairly well against St. Louis, have some good history in the playoffs against St. Louis. So I do believe they're pulling for St. Louis because I, I don't think any team wants to see Kershaw, Grinky, Rue coming at you. Even though Grinky has been named the closer, uh, still Grinky could be getting a start here and there. Postseason's been great so far. Definitely enjoyed watching it, especially as a diehard baseball fan. Even as a casual baseball fan, you have to enjoy what the Orioles, especially in the in the Orioles and the Royals are doing, and you have big teams out in the NL as well. Jake Peavy grinding it out for his team, former Red Sox. Cardinals and Dodgers having a good series. So that's definitely something to keep your eye on and definitely stay tuned for that and enjoy it. Now, I kind of want to go back, uh, touch on a little bit of Red Sox stuff here before we end up, before we finish off the show with talking about the rule changes for the baseball and the pace of play and what, what we feel about them because I have some feelings about those rules. But those that'll be in a few minutes here. I want to first react to what Brian McPherson, who joined us earlier from the Providence Journal, I want to react to what he reacted to about the Red Sox. Now, he said a lot went wrong with the Red Sox this year. Blame, obviously, the A.J. Pruszynski thing was an issue. Yeah, Grady Sizemore, failure. We, we can go on and on about the list of negatives, but his MVP this year, I asked, we asked him in his MVP, and you heard it. He said David Ortiz, out of all the things that could have could have went wrong. David Ortiz didn't give in didn't, and played hard and really showed his Red Sox team that he was going to gut it out all year. And it's it's great sign seeing your captain really push through like that and really, even though he's a veteran and could have packed it in knowing the season was over basically in May, he came through for this team. And we know what he did. He hit a lot of home runs. He did the things. He had a great number of RBIs. Numbers aren't in front of me. That's why I'm freelancing and freeballing those numbers here. But I think that the MVP, it was either Ortiz or Brock Holt for me, because Brock Holt was the most consistent this year. And I think Brock Holt had a great year, and I think expect to be on the roster next year, but I don't know, Nate, can you? how do you not give it to David Ortiz this year? You, there's really no other guy to give it to. I mean, it has to be Ortiz. You're looking at a guy who had a monster year. Didn't even know who was going to be hitting ahead of him or after him this season. And, you know, you're looking at a guy who put up 35 home runs and 104 RBIs on a team that finished last place in the division, this guy was out battling each and every game uh, with the contract talks in the air and all that. Ortiz had a heck of a season uh, down there in Boston. His average sunk. His I'm not gonna take. I'm not gonna give him a free pass for the average because that was definitely a concern for me. But the power was there. The RBIs were there. He was getting on base. He was really the one constant in this Red Sox lineup. Yeah, Ortiz. He's been a constant for years now, and I think he's the him and Pedroia both. Obviously, Pedroia left early with his injury, but him and Pedroia both have been a, the epitome of this team and what it is to work hard and really throughout the season. Uh, another guy that I was impressed with all year, um, obviously not MVP numbers, was David Ross. David Ross was con- obviously the backup catcher, but consistently always upbeat. Always he was on the Toucher and Rich show once a week here in Boston, and he just he always says the right things. He took. At first, he even admitted he wasn't sure about what, it, what he was going to react to about losing, but then he really started to embrace that role with the young guys, especially mentoring Vasquez and, and Butler when he started coming up here in September. I, I, think, I think he definitely 
portrays what it means to be a veteran on this team, even though you're going to be a backup catcher. He does. He definitely portrays what it is to be a veteran. I mean, he's worked with a lot of guys in this team. I mean, you, you have uh, Vasquez saying that he's worked with David Ross extensively uh, on his defensive game, on his hitting, on his play calling. I mean, David Ross is a guy who you want around this team. He's a great influence. He's kind of like a Johnny Gomes. He works with the young guys. Even if he's hurt, he's always around the ballpark. He's always got a smile on his face. He's always rooting on his guys. He's not a guy who's going to get hurt like a Beckett and go to the golf course. He's going to be there, and I think David Ross is going to make make a very good manager uh, someday. Yeah, David Ross it should be a good manager, depending on no matter where he would manage. Um, probably not going to be the Red Sox. I think John Farrell's going to be here, and if not, Veritech, I think I think Jason Veritech's waiting in the wing to have some managerial like role down down the line with the Red Sox. He's some, I don't know what his official title is, but he does work alongside Ben Charrington now. I wouldn't be surprised, and don't be surprised if he eventually does anything with the catchers, eventually gets on the field, and then slowly works his way up to the managerial status eventually once the Red Sox power ways with John Farrell, however soon or rather further along that may be. Who knows? But definitely expect Jason Veritek, in my opinion, to manage eventually. So we've talked a lot so far, Nate, and I just want to, before we move on, I just want to remind people that we're obviously brought to you by CLNS Radio. CLNS Radio, this is a network podcast, and just want to remind people to go on and check out CLNS Radio on Twitter, just clnsradio.com backslash Twitter. Same thing for the Facebook, just backslash Facebook. Check out social media, a lot of good stuff up there, sharing our posts written and, and obviously podcast work daily. So just thank you. We appreciate you guys for listening and tuning in. Now, moving on to what I really wanted to talk about today. And this was this was big news a little early in the week, but obviously, you know, we're on once a week and we're a podcast, so we're going to talk about it because it's kind of a big deal in terms of it's kind of getting undershadowed by the playoffs, which have been fantastic, like we've talked about. But now, the baseball, we all know. We, we've all been through those four-and-a-half-hour Red Sox-Yankee games. We've been, we've been through all those dreadful games that you see, they see shots on the TV of kids falling asleep. Kids, parents falling asleep with their kids on their laps. Games can take forever in baseball, and that's why the baseball popularity in this country is slowly diminishing. Not the only factor, but it's definitely part of it that people just don't have the time to want to sit down and watch a whole baseball game. Because I know, Nate, you can even admit, even as a baseball diehard, these games can take a, l- a little while. Yes, they can. And, and it even bugs me. I'm a diehard baseball fan. I've played baseball for years. It's annoying, and I don't like it, and I wish the games would take longer. Soccer does it right. Soccer just does quick two. Two forty-five minute halves done in and out, a little extra time, and the game's over in under two hours. It's perfect. It's what it should be. But obviously, baseball is never going to get to that quick because you're never going to stop playing nine innings. Yeah, baseball is not going to speed up uh, significantly, but you know they have to keep the average fan involved in the game. And like you had mentioned, sometimes sitting there watching a uh, five-hour Red Sox Astros game in the rain can be quite bad. <laughs> It's awful. No, the only reason why, honestly, even when the Red Sox Yankees games were good, it was dreadful to sit through those things. So, th- there's definitely a problem in the Major League Baseball, but they're taking the step, like we talked about with Brian earlier in the show. We, we, the baseball gods have finally answered our prayers, and Bud Selig has started a committee which has a, a few rules in place to to be tested during winter baseball and fall leagues and. Uh, a few rules. There's the batter's box rule, no pitch intentional walks, which I'll complain about that one in a second. Uh, 22nd rule for uh, amount of time pitchers have to get the ball back to to throw their next pitch. 
inning break clocks, pitching change break clocks, uh, timeout limits. I want to go through and break all these down. Not too in detail because we don't know how good they're going to be and we haven't really seen them in action. So we have nothing to really complain about. But I kind of want to just go down here and st- I really want to start with the the three timeout limit. Now, what this is, is that each team basically is only going to be giving out, given three timeout conferences per game. Um, that's including extra innings. And that only time that doesn't count is when you're actually making a pitching change because you can't limit teams to pitching changes. Other than that, you can only have three timeouts whether in conferences, whether it be pitcher, pitching coaches coming to the mound, uh, players, positional players coming to the mound to calm their pitcher down, catchers coming to the mound to calm their pitcher down. And that's a big one. I think catchers come abuse that a lot and come to the mound almost. Some, you've seen, I've seen at bats where catchers come to the plate almost every other pitch sometimes if it's a big enough at bat. I like this rule, and I think this should stick because I don't know about three might be a little small depending on but like I think because as long as you give somewhat of a cap that's not too high, you're going to limit the catcher to pitcher visits, and I think that's the problem. Yeah, three is a little bit low for me. Um, I would up it to five because it says including extra innings, or I'd maybe say two of them in extra innings. But as you mentioned, some of these catches really abuse this uh, abuse this rule, and sometimes it's just to warm up the bullpen and what so. But I mean, you, sometimes you got catchers who are going out there for a good minute, minute and a half, talking the pitches, and some of the umpires are just not breaking up the conferences. And you know, it is dragging the game along, and. Uh, seeing, just watching some of these fans at the ballpark just falling asleep. I mean, if you're going to go to a baseball game, I don't know about you, but you're going to pay all that money, you got to stay awake for it. Yeah, I agree. I'm not, I'm not paying to watch a catcher run a mile between the home and, home and uh, the pitcher's mound between the course of a game. I'm not paying to watch a track meet. I'm paying to watch a baseball game. And the three, I, I do agree it needs to be raised a little bit. What the, I think what they should do is do three and then maybe add two. Both teams get two when they get to extra innings. And then if you if you haven't used all of your three, those can carry over as well. So like say you use two, you have one, and then you can get two during. So you can have three during extra innings. And I I get that might slow it down a little bit, but it will still help because not every game is going to go to extra innings. It doesn't happen. So you really you're realistically going to use you're going to have three for the most case, and then that limits the amount of pitching coaches that can come. But as long as you're making a pitching change, it doesn't count. So if you have potentially two pitching changes and you have like three, the only way it's going to hurt is if your team's getting blown out. But at that point, just come make the pitching change. Don't go out there try to calm a guy down in a 10 nothing game when all you got to do is say, you're, you're terrible, you're pitching awful, go sit on the bench. Go hit the showers early. That's all you got to do. Don't waste my time sitting here having some guy, having you guys milk him and try to make him feel better. If he's sucking, just put him on the bench. That's it. Done. So I think that that rule it has some potential for sure. They might have to raise the limit, but either way, definitely has potential. Now, one thing, one rule that I'm intrigued by is the no pitch intentional walks rule, and it's basically what the title says. They're basically going to make it so that it's like a video game. You want an intentional walk? Just hit triangle, and the guy goes to first base. Hit Y on your Xbox One, and it goes to first base. They want to make it so that you don't have to pitch four balls to walk the guy. I hate that because I know I've seen it, and it can happen where a pitcher messes up, falls off the mound or something, and a batter can hit the ball and reach it and take a free hit. It, it eliminates 
the mistakes of baseball, it kind of, it, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I think it, this rule is goofy. I mean, we've seen it with Manny and uh, before he retired. He stepped right into a pitch and he wailed it out into the outfield. And, you know, having a pitcher not throw the four pitches, I just think it's going to mess so much up about baseball. I mean, it's going to mess the pitch count up. It's going to mess the ball strike ratio. It, it's just a goofy rule. And you look at an intentional walk, an intentional walk takes all of 10 seconds. I mean, that is really uh, insignificant way of cutting back time of play, in my opinion. I get they're trying to come up with a bunch of different ways to do test rules, but like you said, it doesn't take a much chunk of time, and it's not like you get like 20 intentional walks a game. At most, you might get two, so what, you're going to shave off 20 seconds? Oh, whoopee, that gets me into bed before my bedtime. Like, no, it's stupid. I don't get, like, we've talked about this, Nate, and I know, I know we've talked about it, where we want this to ha- have an effect where it won't change the game of baseball itself. And there are ways of doing that. Like, there are a couple other rules that we'll get to that won't change the game, but it'll still speed it up. Like the timeout rule. The timeout rule even does that. But this game is changing the actual game of baseball to the sense of, you're, for 20 extra seconds off the clock, it's not worth changing the game and the human element of mistake in this game. Like you said, Manny did it. He, got, he, got a couple, he did it a couple times while he was here in Boston. People are going to do it. It's going to happen. Vlad, Vlad Guerrero definitely did it a bunch of times because he swung at everything anyway. So it wasn't really much different, only it was a lob instead of a fastball. It changes the way this game is played, and there is no way that if this, if this passes, that's stupid. But I think that once Fall League comes and these, these rules start getting tested, I think the commissioner and all this committee, this committee of baseball heads, are going to realize that taking 20 cents, seconds off the clock is not worth it. But now it's just a matter of, I don't even, I don't even know, it's, that, that rule just bugs me, Nate, and I'm kind of over it. But another rule that I think is going to be one of the bigger ones, and Brian McPherson touched on it, was the batter's box rule. Now, the batter's box rule, it, it, it's saying, right, I have the quote in front of me, the batter shall keep at least one foot in the batter's box throughout his at-bat unless one of a series of established exceptions occurs, in which case the batter may leave the batter's box but not the dirt area surrounding home plate. Exceptions include a foul ball or a foul tip, a pitch forcing the batter out of the batter's box, time being requested and granted, a wild pitch or a pass ball, and several others that they didn't name. That makes sense. That's, the, that's how it's written in the rule book. But players are abusing it and umpires aren't enforcing it. Like Brian said when he was on with us, Nomar did it for years, backed off, take the batting gloves off, step out of play. Ortiz does it. He saunters. He, take, he goes out to the grass outside of the dirt, fixes his batting gloves on, spits on his gloves, Wipes his bat down, gets back under the batter's box, does it again. Next pitch, does the same thing over and over again. It's ridiculous. Just stop and play baseball. You know, I don't have a problem with players stepping out of the batter's box. I mean, maybe you have a limit on five seconds out of the batter's box. But for some guys, like Ed mentioned, stepping out of the batter's box gets the juice going, doing the batting gloves that Nomar did. It really got, it really just amped him up as a player, as a hitter. I know it sounds goofy saying, well, tightening batting gloves can actually get a guy going. But you saw some, you saw how he'd wind up for a swing and all that, twirling the bat around. It, you know, it's just part of his ritual. It's just part of something he's done for years. And if you're going to eliminate this, do we have to eliminate the pitcher walking around the mound and tossing the Rossin bag up? I don't know. Well, they're trying to do that because they put a, they're trying to put a pitch clock on, too, which we'll get to. But I think that, I think it's stupid because they abuse it. I'm okay. With, like, like, this is even okay. Take one step out. Get the sign. Fix your batting gloves quickly. Step back in. Don't 
Okay, you're a Major League Baseball player. If you need to fix your batting gloves 8,000 times to get amped up, I'll take your place. Because, you know, jacked up I'd be every night to play Major League Baseball. I don't get it in terms of, I get sports have rituals. I mean, anyone who's an athlete had their rituals at some point. I had rituals, silly as they probably were. Everyone does when you play sports. But to the point where you have to walk away, 5 or 10 feet away from the box, come back, or you have to fix your batting gloves 8,000 times, I understand putting the bat down, fixing your batting gloves, popping it back up. But keep a foot, keep a foot in the box, and just go for it. And like they're giving you chances. Like it's not like every second. Like foul tips, you're gonna have the chance to get take a breath, step out of play. You're gonna have the chance to when you can you can call time still. You and there's a wild pitch in a fastball, obviously. But it's not like it's gonna be okay as long as you're hitting. Your foot's stuck in there. But it's it's trying to get to an even playing field where it's one they're trying to enforce the rule that's already in the rule book, and they're trying to add some more stipulations to it to say okay. We don't mind you having your rituals, but just shorten them a little bit. Because I haven't done the math. That's a lot of math to do, and I'm not, that's not my best forte. But I guarantee you, if you did the math, it's going to take a serious chunk out of your time if you make the batters get in and out and play the game quick. Well, you got to look at it. It's not like every batter stepping out of the batter's box and walking around. It's, it's maybe one, two, or three guys in, the, in a certain lineup. So this rule... It's probably cut off, um, what, maybe 20 minutes from the game. But, um, you know, I don't mind seeing it as a fan. I know different fans will have different opinions on him, but uh, I don't mind seeing guys walk around the batter's box. It's just my opinion. Yeah, I I get what you're saying, and I I get from a player's point of view, because I'm sure if this gets put into full effect next season, which they're they're trying to, but I don't think it will, I, I get players will probably push the limits, and they'll try to really force it, and you'll probably get... I don't know what the infractions are going to be for that. I don't know. I don't think it really was stated yet. They haven't finally figured that all out. But if you want baseball to become more popular, this is kind of a first step because you're going to get people to watch it. And I think that's a big thing that I, I at least a lot of the casual fans that I know of say, oh, that, that they just take forever. They don't need to do it. So I think this is Major League Baseball's way of trying to bring that casual fan back into the long games, whereas us baseball purists get it. We know the baseball players like to do that. It's what they've always done. But I think the what's-they've-always-done argument is kind of what MLB is trying to get rid of because they're trying to get rid of, okay, well, this is just stuff we've always done. Now the game's taking like five hours. So we need to fix something. And that's what they're trying to get rid of. What's always done has been the problem, and they're trying to at least maybe not a, uh, get rid of it completely, but they're definitely trying to figure it out in a way that it can maybe diminish the issue. So I think the batter's box rule is definitely a good start, whether they tweak it or not, but I think it might, be, it might work the way they have it. Another rule that you kind of hinted on here was the pitcher walking around with the rosin bag that relates to the rule they have where they're throwing out a 20 second rule, which is basically that the pitcher has 20 seconds to throw the next ball because rule 8.04 requires the pitcher to deliver the ball to the batter within 12 seconds after he receives the ball with the bases unoccupied. Now that is what they're, they're trying to get it to be 20 seconds total. I, I, I've kind of confused the way they worded it, but I, what I believe is once the pitcher catches the ball, it's 12 seconds because they get, they're giving it time from catcher's mitt to throw. And so it's, I think at max they're going to allow 20 seconds. I'm kind of confused by it, Nate. If you, if you know it more than I do, you can clarify me. But basically my argument towards the pitch clock is it's good if you can enforce it because you have to figure something out. And that might limit the rosin bag argument, but you could also pick the rosin bag up once the catcher catches the ball and it's kind of multitask instead of catch it, saunter around, pick it up. I just like pace of play. I like fast games. Nate, what, 
what do you think a pitch clock would do to baseball? I think a pitch clock would definitely speed up the game of baseball, but the one part of this rule I don't like, and uh, you know, I don't know how you would really enforce it unless you have it, is the umpire is going to call a ball if the pitch isn't thrown within the 20 seconds. Now, there could be a lot of argument as you'd need a clock somewhere, definitely, because in the NFL and the um, the, the the clock that they have uh, for the quarterback, um, you know. They could, there could be a lot of argument in this, and they could say that, well, that wasn't 20 seconds, that was 15 seconds. So, you know, with the, time comes an iffy spot. Where is the clock going to be? Who's going to be looking at the clock? Who's going to be starting the clock and all that? But one, if they can get that ironed out, you know, this could be a, a real uh, good rule to speed up the game. I think there has to be a clock somewhere visible on the field. You can't have a guy upstairs just monitoring it, whatever. And then say, and put like an ear pierce in the ump and say, oh, okay, yep, that's 20 seconds, stop the play. Like, that's not going to work. And I don't think that's their plan. I think what their plan is to eventually put a pitch clock somewhere in the visible eye of the home plate umpire where he can keep an eye on it. It's kind of almost in his direct view. So he can say, okay, and he'll call self time and say delay of game or something. And I think if you're going to see it, it's going to almost be like a delay of game in football. And I think what I would do if I was the commissioner of baseball, which I would never be, not that talented in life. Sorry, I'll stick to sports radio. I think the best way to do it is throw a pitch clock somewhere in center field big enough that the ump can see. Somewhere, or build it into a wall somewhere in center field that you can, it's, you can see it, but it's not going to hurt somebody if they run into it. Something into that sense where that the umpire doesn't have to look much further than they're already looking so that they can see the clock hit zero and right away call, them, call time. So... They mentioned this uh, this rule, but would this rule apply when the pitcher is staring over at a base runner? Yeah, it's it's included. It, it might, see, that's the only part of it that I I kind of think that it might hurt is the whole staring down base runners and like the whole pitching the pitching and base runner versus base runner aspect of the game because the way they're the way that I see the rule is going to be is you have twenty seconds to throw the ball regardless of what you do within those twenty seconds. You know that that does worry me a little bit because you know baseball. Everyone knows baseball. It's a, it's a game of strategy, and you know the the three timeout limit, and now this staring at the batter. That does worry me, and that does worry me that a little strategy of baseball is going to be taken out. And that's just something that's made baseball so unique. That's made that's why the managers get paid so much. Strategy, and you know I just hate to see elements like that get taken out of the game. Um, being a fan like I am, but, you know, if that's what they got to do to speed up the game, God bless them. Yeah, I, I think I think you're definitely going to take away a little bit of it, but I also think that on the back end, if you are a pitcher and you want that strategy of being able to mess with the runner and kind of take longer to throw the ball and really have them guessing, just get back on the mound quicker. That's all it really takes. Just, I get if you want the rosin bag, quickly do it, and then get back on the mound, and then have your catcher call it, and just get back there. And all you, I mean, no pitcher holds the ball more than 10 seconds anyway to fool a runner. So take, catch the ball, get on the mound, and you, then you have like seven or eight seconds for a, pitch, for a catcher to figure out what you have, if not more. And then you have eight to 10 seconds to play with the runner's mind. I think if the pitcher is committed to being quicker to get back on the rubber instead of taking his time, then you're not going to lose the, ga- the aspect of base running versus pitching in terms of the pitchers trying to slow the runners down, not having them get a good jump. So I think there's ways around it, but the pitchers have to buy into it is the problem. 
yeah, the pitchers do have to buy into it, and they're obviously going to change. Have to change uh, a lot of things they do. The pickoff moves, uh, you know, signs are going to have to be changed, and and what, and vice versa. But you know, it, once this rule gets played out, and yeah, um, the league is getting played out, and I'd like to see it in in a game situation, and that'll give me a better understanding of how it's going to actually translate to the MLB. It's definitely an interesting rule for me because I think a lot of people have called for the pitch clock to be the one as the big one for speeding up games more than anything. I think the pitch clock has been the biggest argument for anyone in sports radio or anywhere in baseball have talked about speeding up baseball. The first thing was, oh, let's put a pitch clock in. So I think that's the number one thing that baseball should probably strive for. I think it's the best place to start if any of these rules do stick. If, if, this, if the only one rule was to stick, I think that's, where the, best, that's the best one to stick first. For, my, for me. I think it's the best one to start with. Now, there's two other rules that we can quickly touch on because they kind of go together. You have a two-minute and five-second inning break and a two-minute and 30-second pitching change break clock. Now, with the inning break, you have a maximum of two minutes and five seconds between innings. Hitters must enter the batter's box by the 145 mark. When batters violate the rule, the umpire may call an automatic strike. When the batters are set up by the appropriate time and pitchers fail to throw a pitch before the conclusion of the mark, the umpire shall call a ball. Now this one's set. Like They have the ramifications of it. They have everything. I kind of like the speedy up between innings because, I mean, that makes players hustle and all that stuff. But what does that do, Nate, for baseball in terms of does that make a pitcher less ready for an inning if they've been sitting for a while even? I think it does. I think it takes away from the warm-up aspect and... You know, some pitchers need 10 pitches or so to get warmed up, and I don't really think MLB has the right to take that away. I mean, the pitchers have been doing this for 100 years, and, you know, to start putting in clocks between pitching changes and clocks between inning breaks, I haven't looked at, I have never clocked an inning break, but... I'm sure it's around the 205 mark. I mean, 205 is kind of an odd number to come up with, so they must have they must got some have some sort of average of how long an inning takes. It probably takes around two two minutes and thirty seconds. But I think calling a strike is is a little bit goofy. I mean, normally when you see a pitcher ready to pitch, normally the batter's in there. I mean, if it's not looking down for a sign or two, the batter's pretty much on cue with the pitcher. I, I don't know if you've seen the same thing. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Batters are usually up and ready because they're pretty much, they're on deck swinging and everything during, even when you don't see it on, during commercial break, you see it, batters are on deck swinging and they don't need that much time to get loose because they've been playing the game. So you're really staying loose. And if you're the DH, you're getting loose in the dugout while your team's on defense. So, I think it's more on the pitching side that it would have to worry me than the batter's side. The batter's side, I don't think it's going to change much for them. Now, what this rule also kind of hinders is a, another train of thought to go down. What I kind of just hinted at was, what about commercials? What about the money side of it in terms of, it might, it might short, cut short some commercial time. It might cut short some ad time and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that would have an impact at all? in their mentality to, to either keep or get rid of this rule? Uh, I really don't. I mean, MLB makes so much money, and, you know, local stations make so much money. I mean, lots of the commercials on Nesson, uh, the money goes towards Nesson. So, I mean, unless the owners really have a say in this in this rule once it hits, I'm not sure the MLB will do too much about it. I mean, it is, these 
stations get paid more money for the viewers to stay watching the game, which brings in more commercials than they would for, to, you know what I'm saying, cut out two or three commercials? Yeah, I, I have to agree. I don't. I think the owners, I don't think baseball owners or NFL owners are not that greedy. I think baseball owners are in it for the game more than the money. And I, I think baseball owners get it for the most part. Um, Tom Warner is on the committee. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, but so he has an impact. It has an impact right here at home with the Red Sox. But I don't think that that money issue is terribly. I think it's probably. I'm sure it came up, but I don't think it's going to be a huge issue. And to go along with the inning break, there's also a two minute and thirty second max uh, pitching change break clock. When you change pitchers, you have two and a half minutes for them uh, to get on, warm up, and throw the first pitch. First pitch must be thrown before the conclusion of that period, or the umpire shall call ball. The clock shall start when the new umpire enters the playing field, um, for example, crosses the warning track or the foul line, depending on where the bullpen is in that park. So, you have two and a half minutes from when the pitcher gets onto the grass of the field to throw the first pitch after he's starting warming up. Now, this one's not as bad, because they, if they do it right, they would have already been warming up in the bullpen. So I don't think this one's going to affect the game as much as the inning break, but I kind of wanted to kind of do them together because they're both with the pitching and the they kind of go together. Do you think this would hinder the game at all, Nate? Because I don't really think this one is big of a deal to me as the inning break itself. It wouldn't hinder the game, in my opinion, at all. But you know, again, you're gonna have you're gonna have to sort of balance these enforcements out with. You're gonna see managers who are gonna be saying, "Well, you gave this pitcher an extra minute, and you didn't give my guy an extra minute." Things like that that NFL coaches argue about all the time. You're gonna start to see in baseball, and I I'm just intrigued at how this is really gonna work out in the fall league and I it just piques my amazement to see the first argument on this and to see the first argument of time by the pitchers the first strikes that have been thrown I mean it's just going to be really interesting if any of these rules get enforced in uh, major leagues yeah I'm intrigued to see how it goes to the fall league Nate I I don't know how it's going to work but I'm definitely intrigued to pay attention to the storylines once the fall league gets going because I'm sure there'll be people down there writing on it and reporting on it uh, we'll be on weekly, obviously, so we can kind of talk about it as it goes. But kind of right out of time with this one, Nate. It was a good show. I want to again thank Brian McPherson for coming on to the Providence Journal. Before we go, I just want to remind everyone that you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. CLNSRadio.com uh, backslash iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn for the general stations for CLNS Radio. Then you can search for Red Sox Beat if you want our direct Stitcher page and iTunes page at CLNSRadio.com backslash RSB iTunes or backslash RSB Stitcher. I want to thank everyone for tuning in the last four weeks. We reached a milestone with our last episode, getting over 1,000 downloads. So we want to thank you, everyone, for listening and downloading and really helping us share our word. Next goal is obviously 2,000 and so on. So we want to thank everyone for really helping us out. We want to thank CLNS Radio for giving me and Nate the opportunity to get out here and share our love of baseball with you. So, again, we want to thank Brian McPherson for coming on earlier. And until next week, enjoy the postseason, enjoy baseball, and have a good week.